Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm part of the team here and thrilled that you could be with us today. We are actually in week three of a four-week sermon series that we've called Half Truths, exploring some common claims. What we're doing is we're putting some common cultural mantras under the microscope to examine them, to see what they say to us and to see what God's Word has to say about them. Now, we're not always conscious of these mantras. We don't walk around repeating them or printing them out and putting them on our walls, but we are shaped by them. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago, in week one, we looked at the claim, do whatever makes you happy. And we discovered that true and lasting happiness is found only in the happy God who made us and loves us. Last week, we looked at the claim, don't let anyone tell you what to do. And we discovered that true and lasting freedom is found only by letting Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, tell us what to do. Next week, we're going to be exploring the claim, do not judge. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe someone said that to you. Maybe you've said that to someone. I think you'll agree it's a a common idea, and we're going to dig into that next week. Today, though, we are exploring the claim, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. I think you'll agree that this is a common cultural mantra in our day. Maybe you've been given this advice before. You're in a a conundrum and someone has said to you, well, you just got to be true to yourself. Follow your heart, go with your gut. Maybe you've given this advice to someone. This is a common idea and it's the idea that to be happy, to be content, to be satisfied, we must find ourselves, be ourselves and express ourselves no matter what anyone else says, thinks or does. It's the philosophy that the purpose of life is to look inside yourself, to discover your deepest desires, and then to express yourself to the world. This kind of message comes at us in many different ways and from many different directions. For example, it is celebrated in some of the songs that we sing. Now, a few weeks ago, when we looked at our pursuit of happiness, I mentioned the song Happy by Pharrell Williams. If you were in the 10 a.m. service, you had the distinct misfortune of having to hear me sing a line from that song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing again, A, because I don't want you to suffer any more than you already have. B, I don't want that song stuck in my head for the next three days. Anybody else have that song stuck in their head? Yeah, I apologize. Now, if there was an anthem for this claim that we're looking at today, Be True to Yourself, it's hard to go past a song by Lady Gaga called Born This Way. Again, I'm not going to sing it, um, but here's how the chorus goes. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Now, that song kind of perfectly summarizes this modern mantra, to to be ourselves, to define ourselves, to love ourselves, to express ourselves. This same message is championed by celebrities. Uh, For example, Oprah Winfrey is what she says in one of her magazines. And no, I haven't been reading them. I just read a book that quoted her. (laughs) I promise. Oprah Winfrey says, you're fulfilling your mission and purpose on earth when you honor the real you. That's the the purpose of life. 
This same idea is expressed in advertising. For example, according to Swarovski, the classic way to be yourself is to buy their mass-marketed expensive jewellery. This idea has even found its way into our language. I wonder if you've heard the saying, you do you. Or as someone unfortunately made me aware this week, there's another variation of it, you do you, boo, which is (laughs) even worse. And of course, this idea is often found in movies as well. For example, a few years ago, there was a a movie released that was called Lady Bird. Uh, It's this story of a young woman. She's in her final year of high school and she just cannot wait to finish so she can escape her hometown and her family. She has a really rocky relationship with her mum and so she just wants to get away from it all. She sets her sights on a prestigious college, arts college in New York. And she just wants to go there to begin a new life. And she also decides to rename herself. And she calls herself Ladybird. And one day while she's at school, someone asks her, is that really your name? Like your given name? And she responds and she says, yeah, it's my given name. It's the name I gave to myself. It's been given to me by me. Now, again, this just perfectly encapsulates this modern mantra. This young lady chooses to define herself, to rename herself. She writes her own story. This is the message that comes at us in many ways and from many different locations. The question is, what should we think of it? How should we respond to it? Well, truthfully, this mantra is not entirely wrong. Depending on what we mean when we say it, to be true to ourselves can be a good thing. For example, it's a good thing to live with integrity, to live in line with your convictions and your values. This is what the the Bible says in Proverbs 10, for example, verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. It's a good thing to be true to your convictions, to your values. For example, maybe you remember back in 1998, right before the start of the Tour de France, there was a huge amount of performance-enhancing drugs that was discovered in the support car for Team Festina. And this discovery led to the exposure of a widespread scandal, uh, a widespread doping program within Team Festina. It emerged that everyone in this team was taking drugs. Everyone except one person, Christophe Bassoons. Despite being pressured by teammates, despite being pressured by management, despite missing out on winning bonuses, despite being publicly humiliated by his teammate Lance Armstrong, despite being dropped, cut from the team for refusing to cheat, Christophe Bassoons did not dope. He did not cheat. And later, when he was asked how he just resisted this intense pressure, this is what he said. He said, I don't think I was courageous not to take drugs. I'd had a balanced upbringing, lots of love in my life, no void which made me want to dope. In other words, he's saying, I was being true to myself. I was being true to my values, true to my convictions. And so sometimes to be true to ourselves can be a good thing. Now, of course, it depends on what our convictions are. I mean, you could argue that Lance Armstrong was being true to himself. 
by doping. But he was just being true to his deepest desires for success and fame and winning. To be true to ourselves can be a good thing if it lines up with our values and our convictions. But the truth is, this philosophy also falls short in many different ways. If we follow this philosophy to its logical conclusion, it can actually be a catastrophic way of living because it raises some really difficult, thorny questions. For example, if I should be true to myself, which self should I be true to? To myself in in my good moments or in my moments of weakness and temptation? To myself when I'm in the presence of others or or myself when, when no one else is looking? Should I be true to Adam on a, on a Monday morning when he's motivated to eat healthy for the week? <laughs> or should I be true to Adam on a Friday night after a big week and all he wants is a burger, some chips and a cold beer? <laughs> now, it's a bit of a silly example, but it's true. Our, our feelings, our sense of self, it shifts and it changes. I mean, we can stretch this over decades as well. Should I be true to how I felt as an eight-year-old? or as an 18-year-old, God forbid, or or as an 80-year-old. You know, what what I thought at eight was very different to what I thought at 18, which is very different to what I think now, which is, I imagine, be different to what I think at 80. And so if I keep on changing to which self should I be true? It's trying to build our identity on shifting sand. And related to this difficulty is the the crushing weight of this philosophy, of this mantra. I mean, if it's up to you to find yourself, to be yourself, to express yourself, then that becomes a whole lot of weight on yourself to find your way in this world. Here's the way one writer puts it, Alan Noble. He says, if we are our own, then it's up to us to forge our own identities and to make our lives significant. But while that may sound empowering, it turns out to be a crushing responsibility, one that never actually delivers on its promise of a free and fulfilled life, but instead leaves us burned out, depressed, anxious, and alone. I mean, has our self-referential, individualistic pursuit made us more happy or less? One psychologist in in a recent book, Jean Twenge, she concludes that this generation, our generation, is suffering the worst mental health crisis in decades. And of course, there's complicated reasons for this, but she suggests a key cause is our greater focus on self. Our obsession with self-discovery, self-image, self-promotion. I mean, the word of the year a few years ago was selfie. It's made, and, and she would suggest that it hasn't made us more happy, more free, more content, more fulfilled, but actually less. And this leads us to another difficult, thorny question for this mantra, and it's this. Do we really want everyone to be true to themselves? I mean, to use an extreme example, do we really want Kim Jong-un, the, the, the North Korean dictator, to be allowed to be true to himself, to express himself, his, his desires for oppression and torture and even murder? What about criminals and abusers and, and, and narcissists? What about the person that cuts in line at Woolies. We don't want them to be true to themselves. I mean, the point is there's a limit, isn't there? We don't really want everyone to be true to every desire. 
In fact, if everyone did this, lived this way, if everyone was only ever true to themselves, the result would be a monumental clash of views. The result would be a lot like what we're seeing around us today. Here's the way Tim Keller puts it in his book, Making Sense of God. He says, under the conditions of the modern individualistic self, social ties and institutions are eroding. Marriage and family are weakening. Society is fragmenting into warring factions and economic inequality is growing. He says it's well documented that you can tie this to our individualism, our pursuit of self. So so what's the answer? What's the solution? If being true to ourselves isn't working, then what or who should we be true to? And the answer is that we need a truth from outside ourselves. We need a truth that is higher than ourselves. To use a different analogy, we need a sun around which we can orbit. You know, the reason that the planets in our solar system don't collide with each other is because they are on a a different path to every other planet. Every planet is a different distance from the sun. And the sun's gravitational force holds all of those planets in place so they don't collide with one another. You see, we need a sun around which we can orbit, which holds us in our rightful place. Now, you're in church, so it shouldn't surprise you to know that I'm going to suggest that the good news of the Bible is that this is exactly what we have. That we were made by God and for God that God is the sun around which we were made to orbit, that God is the one who can hold us in our rightful place, that he is the one who gives us our identity, that he is the one who tells us who we are. You see, according to the Bible, if we want to understand ourselves, if we want to understand our place in the world, we shouldn't look within. Rather, we should look up to the God who made us and loves us. Now, what do we discover when we look to what God says? What does the Bible say about us? How does it help us to understand ourselves? The Bible says three very important things that helps us to understand ourselves and our place in this world. The first thing the Bible tells us is that we are created. We are created. We're not accidents. We're not here by random chance. But nor are we authors. We didn't write ourselves into the story. Rather, we are creatures that have been made by God. And this is really important because if God made us, then God owns us and God defines us. I mean, we know this is true all the time. If you make something, you own it. For example, I've got a a book here in my hand. It's an excellent book. It's called Be True to Yourself by a pastor named Matt Fuller. A lot of what I'm sharing with you today I've, I've gleaned from Matt. Now, helpful book, but I can't just take it and think, yeah, this is really good. Scribble out his name and write my name on top. Claim it as my own. Do with it what I want. No, Matt wrote it. Matt owns it. Or at least the the publisher probably does. You see, God made us. God owns us. God defines us. We don't get to define ourselves. God is the sun and we are the reflection. God is the sound and we are the echo. God is the original and we are the image. That's exactly what the Bible says. It says we're not just made, we're not just created, we are made in God's image. 
We're made by God, for God, to reflect God. And this means we have great value, dignity, and worth. We are image bearers of God. And this is totally apart from what we have, what we own, where we live, how much we earn, what our grades are. We have great dignity, great value, great worth simply because we are made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there are no ordinary people. There are no mere mortals because every single person you meet has been created in the image of God. And they have objective value and worth. I mean, why does the world lose its mind every single time a baby is born to a, a member of the royal family? It's not because of how cute or, or cuddly or whatever that baby is. Rather, it's because of a the family they're born into. Their royalty simply by virtue of their birth. And you know, the Bible says something similar about humanity. Psalm 8 says that we have been crowned with glory and honour. In other words, we are royalty, not because we're so cute or special ourselves, but simply because of the family that we've been born into. God's family, the human family, rather. And so we are created with great dignity, value, and worth. And this is the foundation for understanding who we are. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, you might log onto Facebook, you might watch the news, and you might think, we're royalty? Really? Because it doesn't always look that way, does it? And this leads us to the second thing the Bible tells us about us. Firstly, we are created. Secondly, we are fallen, the Bible would say. See, although we have been created in God's image, although we have been crowned with glory and honor, we have walked away from the one who created us and crowned us. We've gone our own way. We've turned our backs on God. We have, to return to our analogy of the sun, we've placed ourselves at the center of the universe. We've wanted everything and everyone else to revolve in orbit around us. And the result is that the planets are starting to, or not starting to, the planets have collided with one another in significant ways. To use a different analogy, it's almost as if God has put us on top of the Alps and we have this amazing, majestic view in front of us a view that would give us joy, a view that would give us proper perspective, and instead we pull out a mirror and say, I'd rather look at myself. <laughs> this is what we've done in many ways. We've exchanged the glory of God for created things. We've turned in rather than look up to God. This is what the Bible calls the fall, and the fallout of the fall has been catastrophic. It's affected every area of our existence, and it means that we are now cracked mirrors. We wear broken crowns. We are, what Francis Schaeffer said, glorious ruins. And this is not just, you know, the bad people, those people out there or these people over here. No, no, this is every person from the moment we're born. This is what Psalm 51 says in verse 5. The, the psalmist writes and says, I was guilty of sin from birth. A sinner, the moment my mother conceived me. I'm yet to see a new parent quote this verse with their baby's photo. <laughs> I thought about it, Molly wouldn't let me. <laughs> the realistic truth is that we're not born innocent and corrupted by the world. 
The Bible would say we're actually born corrupt and you and I add to the corruption of God's world. Now, it's pretty confronting, isn't it? But it's realistic as well. And this is why Jesus said something similar in Matthew 15. He said, it's out of the human heart that that evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all kinds of things flow. This is why you've heard it said, the heart of the human problem is the human heart. And this really brings us to the crux of the issue. The ultimate problem with the mantra, be true to yourself. And it is that yourself is the problem. Myself, apart from God's grace, is the problem. We're trying to be true to something that is fallen, fractured, and false. And that explains why our world is the way it is and why the mantra, be true to yourself, isn't working. We were not made to orbit around ourselves. We were not made to be the center of the universe. We were made to orbit around God. And this explains why when Jesus shows up on the scene, this is what he says to us in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus' message to us first and foremost is not be yourself. Jesus' message to us is deny yourself. Deny your your selfish, sinful urges and and hearts. Now, to deny yourself does not mean to give up a few small treats occasionally. To deny yourself means to give up all control in every area of life. To deny yourself means that you no longer say, "Well, well, what do I think is best? It means you say, what does Jesus think is best? And you're willing to follow and obey no matter what that cost might be. That's why actually Jesus describes it almost as, as death. He says we are to take up our cross and follow him. We don't just follow him on, on church, to church on Sunday occasionally. We lay down our lives and we follow him no matter what the cost may be. Now this is confronting stuff, isn't it? Jesus doesn't just demand some of our lives, he demands all of it. Jesus isn't just an accessory that we can kind of fit in somewhere in our lives. He is our lives. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 35, he says, for whoever wants to save their life, cling to it, hold on to it, be in control of it, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus says, if you live for yourself, you will ultimately lose everything. But if you put your life in his hands, you will ultimately gain everything forever. And this brings us to the third thing the Bible says about us. It says we are created in the image of God. We are fallen We are glorious ruins. But thirdly, most importantly, the Bible also says that we are redeemed, made new, healed, put back together, being restored in Jesus. And you see, this is why Jesus came, to give us our true selves back. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. 
but nor did he come to give us a pat on the back and to say, well, just keep doing what you're doing. And we came to rescue us, redeem us, and restore us. He paid the penalty of our evil, our sin, on the cross once and for all. He rose again to defeat death and all of our enemies, and he pours out his Holy Spirit so that we might be remade in the image of Christ, in the person that God made us to be, which is our true self. And this is why the only way to find everything that we're looking for, it's not actually to be true to ourselves. It's to be true to Jesus. Because Jesus has been true to us, faithful to us, even to the point of death on a cross. See, Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who had the highest honor, the highest name, the most lofty identity, that he descended from heaven to earth and he died in disgrace and in shame. Why? So that you and I could be given a name and an identity that lasts forever. So that we could be crowned again in glory and honor as God intended us to be. And so that we could have a status that is more precious than gold. This is our status according to 1 Peter chapter two. Listen to what these words say. You, to the church, those who have their faith in Jesus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. This is your status. This is your name. This is your identity. This is God's opinion of you. I have chosen you to be my special and treasured possession. And this identity is more valuable than anything else in this world. That's what Jesus says in verses 36 and 37. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, there is nothing you could own, there is no one you could be, there is no relationship you could have that compares to knowing Jesus, that compares to having this identity. The only way to true and lasting fulfillment is to discover the true self that God created us to have and created us to be in Jesus. And you know, I want to bring us back to that movie that I mentioned at the start, Lady Bird, because it has a very surprising ending. See, this young lady who wanted to escape her mother, escape her hometown, she wanted to, to go to New York, and she, she renamed herself as Lady Bird. In the end, she discovered that to be yourself, to create your own identity, to be true to yourself and only yourself, it wasn't all that it cracked up to be. And there's a really powerful scene at the end where, where she wanders into church for a little while and, and then she walks out and she picks up the phone and she calls her mum. Remember, she had a, a rocky relationship with her mum. She just wanted to get away. Now, she couldn't get through, so she leaves a message. And the message said this. It said, hey, mum, it's me, Christine. The name you gave me, it's a good one. 
And you see, the God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who loved you, he has given you an identity, a name, and you don't have to earn it. You don't have to fight for it. You can't buy it, but he gives it to you as a free gift through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, you are my special, chosen, treasured possession. If you're in Christ, that's your name, that's your identity, that's who you are, and it's a good name. So let's live in light of it. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us to find our own way, to sort ourselves out. The truth is we can't. But you, through your son Jesus, have drawn near to us. And through his finished work on the cross, through his life-giving resurrection, and through the presence of your spirit, you have given us a name, an identity, a status that will last forever. No one and nothing can take this away from us and no one and nothing can separate us from your love. And so this morning, help us to rest in this identity that you've given us. Help us not to look within, but help us to look up to who you are and who you have created us to be. So Lord, help us to trust you and forgive us where we've wandered from you chasing other things that will not satisfy we return to you, we, we put our, all of our hope in you this morning and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.